Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for coming. And um, Eric and I are going to be trying our best to answer some questions that you have been texting in. Others may even come in while we're doing the program. Uh, first, I'd like to say that uh, I don't have all the answers. One of my favorite things is when we do our Bible Answer radio program every Sunday evening. I don't any of you ever catch the radio program out this way? A few of you do. I don't know what stations we're on out here, but uh, every Sunday nationally, we're on, by the way, if you've got satellite radio, it's on uh, XM Sirius Radio every Sunday night, 7 o'clock Eastern, which I guess is 10 here, which means our church service in Sacramento is not quite done yet. I could call the pastor preaching right now and see if he has his cell phone on. Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> but um, anyway, we really enjoy doing our best to try to answer Bible questions. I love talking about the Word, but I always like to make it clear, not because we pretend we know all the answers. So we'll do our best. And Eric, I don't know, you have any of your preliminaries or shall we dive right in? And I think we're uh, ready. Okay. This is the fun part of the service, right? Amen. Okay, first question. Pastor Doug, I was wondering, is your cave still available? <laughs> well, we could talk later. And <laughs> no, well, there's no one in it right now. I know that. I actually went back there. It's probably been three years ago or more. Quick story. Uh, National Geographic was doing a special that since his broadcast on Revelation, and they interviewed me along with Tim LaHaye and a bunch of other pastors. And I don't know what possessed them, but someone gave them the Caveman book, and they said, you know, as part of this interview, we'd like to videotape you up at the cave where you used to live. So I'm absolutely serious. They flew me from Sacramento to Palm Springs. They rented a helicopter. They flew me up to the cave, which was great because I hadn't been there in a long time. And I got to hike around the hills and just have a great time because it's now blocked off. The entrance is blocked off. The Indian reservation that owns the mouth of the canyon has stopped any traffic. And so it's cleaner than I've seen it in years. No one's been up there, and I was able to hike down there, but you have to take a helicopter. So, yes, it's available if you've got a helicopter. Okay, next question. I feel like a hypocrite. I don't feel as close to God as I would like to be. I feel as if my prayers hit the ceiling. How can I get back that closer relationship? Well, being a hypocrite means that you're sometimes putting on to be something you're not or wearing a mask. Uh, haven't we all sometimes pretended to feel or be something that we're not? I mean, even if someone says, how are you, and you say fine and you're not fine, technically it's a little hypocritical. Uh, don't be discouraged. I think all of us at times feel like we're not worthy. And just, you know what I found is if you feel like I'm just going to quit because I'm not being sincere or I feel like I'm putting on an act, you know what they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, fake it till you make it. Now, let me explain. <laughs> you are better doing the right thing even if you don't feel sincere or you're doing it for the wrong reason than sincerely doing the wrong thing. It's always better to do the right thing, even if the motive isn't right. Keep doing the right thing and then pray for the right motive. Does that make sense? Be honest with people and have friends that you can talk to and say, pray for me. I want to be sincere about this, and, but still do. 
what you know to be the right thing, even if you know that maybe inside you're disingenuous about it. Does that make sense? Press on to live the Christian life because you know it is the right thing. Okay. Even if you're not giving cheerfully, keep giving. <laughs> okay. How do you know God's voice and His leading in your life? That's a very good question. We deal with that, I think, every day in our lives. How do you recognize the voice of God? I used to wonder when Abraham heard that voice that said, Abraham, take your son, your only son, who you love, and go offer him for me as a sacrifice on the mountains of Moriah. How did he know that wasn't the devil being a ventriloquist, pretending to be God? Well, there's several factors. First of all, we need to know that it follows the word. Now, in Abraham's case there, that must have been a real conundrum because it sounded like human sacrifice. He just knew the Lord so well, he recognized his voice. You look at providential indicators. So make sure that God's speaking to you through his word. Look for providential indicators. Sometimes God will change your schedule, and you can see the hand of the Lord in providence. The Bible tells us, in the multitude of counsel, there is safety. God sometimes speaks to us, the voice of God sometimes speaks to us through human instrumentalities. Look for Christian counsel that can guide you. And then you're going to have the inner voice of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that spirit will agree with the word and with the providence and with the counsel. Now, you want to be careful not to make the mistake some people make and they say, oh, I wonder how I feel, and then confuse the spirit with your feelings. It'll always be in harmony with the word, but there is that confirmation of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Since beginning my journey of entering the ministry, I've made some of the most regrettable mistakes of my life. I often feel as if this disqualifies me from ministry. What does the Bible say concerning that? Well, we, we've got some encouragement in uh, the experience of Peter, who God called, Jesus called into ministry, and then he publicly renounced knowing the Lord and uh, punctuated it with swearing and cursing. I think a lot of churches would probably have voted to disfellowship him if the story stopped there. But the Lord kept working on Peter, and before 24 hours went away, he bitterly repented. He wept bitterly, and he was a transformed man. And God knew that and recognized it because one of the first things that Jesus said when he rises from the dead, he tells Mary, go tell the disciples and Peter. Now, he only mentions Peter. Why? Because Peter thought, I am now disqualified from ministry because I have totally blown it. Uh, God is merciful. Now, don't misunderstand. There are things that would disqualify a person from Christian ministry. Um, I'm not going to enumerate what those things are, but there's some things where you should say, you know, this is not appropriate. I mean, if you're arrested as a pedophile and say, well, I'll just say a prayer and I'm going to go back and apply to do children's ministry. No, that's not right. You know what I'm saying? So there, there are lines that you cross, but most of the things that I think a lot of pastors feel like, you know, I, my heart isn't right or I've sinned. How can I teach other people about Jesus? Or there's days where you just want to quit. You know how many times I've thought that? So God is merciful and I'm so thankful that uh, weak and frail though we are. Now one more question. And don't, miss, don't take this too far. But after David made his terrible mistake with Bathsheba, 
did he still write spirit-filled psalms? Like Psalm 51, the one that recorded his repentance? Got something to think about. Does God the Father have a physical form? Does God the Father have a physical form? I believe so. Now, what confuses people, the Bible says that God is a spirit, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And you'll find uh, some of that in John chapter 4. But because it says he is a spirit does not mean that he doesn't occupy space. When you read about the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, 25, coming before the Ancient of Days, it talks about God the Father as seated on a throne, and it talks about, all through the Bible, it seems to talk about the hands of the Lord and the eyes of the Lord. And I know many of those cases are talking about God the Son, but there does seem to be a presence of uh, the Father as having a form and occupying a place. There is a place where he dwells in the universe, a throne he sits upon. Do not think that because he's a spirit that it doesn't mean that he also doesn't have a form. When Jesus rose from the dead, he had a glorified body, but he still had a form. And if man is made in the image of God, it didn't say just the image of the Son, let us make man in our image. At least God the Father and Son, because there's plural there, have an image, a form. Does that make sense? Okay. You don't sound convinced, so we're going to go to the next question. <laughs> okay. Do you think that we can be made perfect while still on earth? Do I think that we can be made perfect while still on earth? With God, all things are possible. You know, when the 12 spies came back from looking at the promised land in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, 10 of the spies did not believe they were able to overcome the enemy. And because they did not believe they were able, they didn't. Two of the spies believed. Matter of fact, Caleb said, I believe we are well able. Let us go up at once and take the land. Caleb and Joshua believed they could do something that seemed humanly impossible because they trusted God's power and not the enemy's power, and they made it, didn't they? I think what scares people is when we think, what does it mean to be perfect? Well, I'm not sure as far as a definition goes, but I think there are people who had the experience that we need. I want to have the kind of love for the Lord that Daniel had where he said, I would rather die and go to a lion's den than disobey the Lord or have the experience that Elijah had where he was taken to heaven in a fiery chariot. He was walking with the Lord so that he was spirit-filled. I'd like to have the experience of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego where they said, we'd rather go to the furnace and lose our jobs than sin knowingly. So when a Christian loves the Lord so much that they would rather die than knowingly hurt the Lord, I think you've reached that place where you're walking and living like Christ, where Peter stood before the Sanhedrin after he was converted, and he said, you judge whether in the sight of God it's better to obey you than to obey God. And he basically said, you can put us in jail, you can whip us, but we're not going to deny the Lord, and we're going to live the life. And it says they took knowledge that they had been with Jesus. They were reflecting Christ. So we want to walk so closely with the Lord that we're reflecting Him. Amen? That, I think, is Christian perfection, where you're following what you know to be God's will. Okay, next question. Pastor Pardon Dan. me. One more thought. Go ahead. This is just so important. How many believe the devil 
the devil can tempt you to sin. Everybody look. I mean, does anyone, how many of you never raise your hand, no matter what question the pastor asks? Okay. You just hate those questions up front. A rhetorical question. So, if you believe the devil has power to tempt you to sin, do you believe the Lord has power to keep you from sin? Who has more power? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Have faith that God can be a better savior than Satan can a tempter. And we can have more consistency. The Bible says in Daniel chapter 6 that when the king moved the stone away, well, actually when he put Daniel in the den and when he took him out, he says, your God who you serve continually, he will deliver you from the lions. And the devil is going around like a roaring lion. Can we serve God continually? Can we? Yes, we can. Don't be so unsure of your answer. Because it will be unto you according to your faith. Believe that all things are possible, that you can be an overcomer. And you can. Amen? You know, the way I look at it is I, I used to drink and smoke and use drugs and curse and all kinds of things. And by the power of God, He helped me with those things. Why would I doubt that He could help me with anything else? So, he who has begun a good work in you will perform it. He can bring you all the way out of Babylon. Okay. You ready? Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Pastor Doug, I'm 13, and that's too young to join SALT or AFCO. What are some ways I can witness for God? Get a different driver's license. <laughs> no. Um, well, everybody can be a witness. I think especially in the last days, we're going to see more young people standing up for their faith, and out of the mouths of uh, babes, so to speak, the Lord is going to perfect praise and preach the truth. Uh, be a witness for whoever is with you. You know, children are just really honest, and sometimes they can get away with saying things that nobody else can say. And just share with friends. Our son, Nathan, is, he's so loving, he invites everybody to church. And sometimes we've actually had to rein him in a little bit because he'll ask someone and they'll say, come, he'll call them week after week after week. And they, they just can't tell him no. And uh, I had a boy come up to me last night here. He was like 10 or 11 years old. He said, Pastor Doug, you look a lot younger on TV than you do in person. <laughs> just tell the truth. <laughs> of course, he's watching like, I think the Net 99 program. <laughs> But yeah, just share with your friends, young people, and uh, share literature, and just say, hey, you know, we're having a program at our church, or give them literature, or a videotape, DVD, they don't use videos anymore. Anyway, there's a lot you can do. Okay, next question. Why does it seem like the God of the Old Testament is not the loving, caring God we are told He is? How can I study to find that loving, caring God? Well, I believe the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament are the same God. And some of the most graceful, loving statements you're going to find in the Bible, in Jeremiah, where he says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Uh, can a nursing woman forget her child, that they should not have compassion on the infant of their womb? They may forget, but I will not forget you, says the Lord. I've engraven you on the palms of my hands. And you read Isaiah chapter 53 and all these other passages. God is a loving God. And then some people are surprised that the most frightening denunciations in the Bible are in the New Testament. You read about the seven plagues in Revelation 14 and 15, and that's pretty scary stuff. 
And you read about in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead at Peter's doorstep. Well, that seems like pretty heavy church discipline, right? So I think it's just a misunderstanding. People read the wars in the Old Testament and then they hear the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament and they think that they're incongruous. It's really the same message when you read all of it. And so it's the same God and a lot of consistency. Okay, next one was uh, very popular. Will we get married in heaven? Well, I'm always going to be a bachelor. So no matter what. <laughs> and my wife got married and she became a bachelor. <laughs> I, it's a cheap joke. I use it whenever I can. But, um, uh, the, you know, there's this passage where the Sadducees were trying to corner Jesus. And they said a woman... Um, had seven husbands, and according to the Mosaic law, that if the husband died before they had any offspring, that the brother was responsible to take her and to raise up seed unto his brother. And this man evidently had a lot of siblings, and he married this woman who must have been a very unlucky bride uh, because he dies, and then his brother marries her, and he dies, and then the third brother marries her, and he dies, and by the fourth brother, I would have started finding excuses. But he marries, and all seven brothers die, and they say to Jesus, who will she be married to? in the kingdom, and Jesus said, you do err neither knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For those who are worthy to participate in the resurrection, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels. And we take that to understand that there will be no new marriages in heaven, but that does not necessarily mean that Adam and Eve get divorce papers in the resurrection. See, marriage was part of God's original plan. He said, go be fruitful, fill the earth, or populate the earth. Well, the earth is going to be populated with a redeemed. So there may not be a need for procreation. But all the best part of marriage is the love and the friendship. Will we still have that in heaven? You know, especially when I'm at academies or at colleges, they ask that question a lot. Because some are thinking, boy, you know, I thought I'd find a boyfriend or girlfriend or some prospect at this point and still haven't found anybody. Oh, what if Jesus comes and I still never got married? I guess I'll just have to go through eternity alone. <laughs> and it's, it's almost smacks of the idea that they'll be unhappy in the kingdom. You just get there and I promise you, you will not be disappointed and you will have an abundance of love and friends and relationships don't worry about the procreation stuff. That just causes problems anyway. So, yeah, I mean, all the good stuff is all still going to be there. And so it, it is a mystery, but it doesn't appear that there's new marriages in heaven. Amen. Okay. What does the Bible say about choosing a God-fearing person to spend the rest of my life with? Well, the Bible says a lot. First of all, it should be someone that uh, seeks first the kingdom of God. You don't want to be looking for a partner you think you can live with. You want to find one you cannot live without. You know the Lord has brought you together and that you share the same goal. Uh, the Bible says, New and Old Testament, I believe it's in Amos, then Jesus said, can two walk together unless they're agreed? And so you want to find someone who has agreed with you that God is the priority. And you've all heard these cliches that the closer you come to Christ, the closer you come to each other. If you find a partner for life and you are both committed to making your lives a continual pursuit of Christ and His righteousness, you will invariably continue to come together. Though there will be interesting discussions 
along the way. Um, you want to make sure you share those priorities. And if you say, well, but maybe I'm not a Christian. How should I choose someone? You need to be a Christian and then find someone else who feels the same way. And don't make the mistake. You're not asking this question, but I'm going to answer it. A lot of people say, well, I found just the most wonderful human being. But they're not going to church or they're not going to my church yet. But I know given time, I'll bring them around. Don't you marry that person until they have come around. I wouldn't even date them. It's, it's a very popular thing to think, oh, but, you know, I'll, this idea of dating evangelism. Uh, some guys have just fall head over heels for a Christian girl, and they'll tell them anything to tie the knot. And then they change and go back to their old ways as soon as the marriage is, is uh, sealed. And so make sure that that person has a pattern of, in their life, seeking first the kingdom. Amen? Do not be unequally yoked. Okay. Can you still do a backflip? I don't know if I had a million-dollar donation for Amazing Facts, I might try, but otherwise, we don't know, neither you or me. <laughs> I think the last one I did was, well, it really wasn't a backflip, it was a back handspring, and that was during the 2006 program, and uh, I hadn't done one for a long time before that. So I'm, I'm, I've got six grandkids now, you know. There's a day when the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we're not going to push it. Okay. How important is the study of prophecy in the Christian life? And why does it seem like it's an uncomfortable part of evangelism? Well, pro prophecy is not an uncomfortable part of evangelism for me or the Amazing Facts Evangelist. We think that it is the most effective way to do evangelism. I, I teach a class at our AFCO program, and part of what we talk about is hand-built design, and we've been doing this for many years. Amazing Facts has been around 47 or 8 years now, and Cyril Miller, who is one of the founders of Amazing Facts, he's the only one still alive, Bill May, Joe Cruz, Cyril Miller started Amazing Facts, he used to tell me, Doug, don't send out an evangelistic handbill without the word prophecy on it said, we've tried everything under the sun. He was a conference president, union president, and he said, invariably, people are drawn to the word prophecy, whether it's prophecies of revelation or prophecies of hope or millennium of prophecy or there's all kinds of ways you can do it or something that, it, that really uh, smacks of the idea of prophecy because people feel powerless. People worry about tomorrow. They don't understand the future. And if you tell them that God understands the future, prophecy really says that. They want to know what's happening, what's coming. Is there a plan? Is, is life just one big old a chaotic uh, coincidence, or is there a purpose? Prophecy really says there is a bigger power at play that's in control. And so it's a very powerful mechanism in evangelism, in giving Bible studies. And once you prove, from like the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2, that God sees the panorama of the world's history, then it also validates the Word of God. Prophecy proves the rest of Scripture is true. And so I think it's just crucial. Don't ever be apologetic about incorporating prophecy into your personal and public evangelism. Did Jesus regain omnipresence after he returned to heaven? One more thought on prophecy. <laughs> no, really, that wasn't to say that there are not other kinds of evangelism that you can do. There's all kinds, there's health evangelism and people do friendship evangelism, lots of things. But I was just saying that historically,
prophecy has proven one of the most successful um, points to bring people in. Now, did Jesus lose his omnipresence when he came to this world? Um, and now, again, we're on holy ground because we're talking about God. That's good. Evidently. It was, um, did he regain his omnipresence when he went back to heaven? Did he regain his omnipresence? Um, yeah, it's really the same question, though, the way I'm going to come at it here, so I appreciate that. Um, when, when we say omnipresence, when Jesus was on earth, you have God the Son on earth, but he wasn't all places at one time, was he? He was confined to one place. When he ascended to heaven, is he now omnipresent? I believe Jesus is definitely omnipresent mentally in that through his divine powers, he can see everybody. He said, I will be with you through the Spirit in the Gospel of John. But physically, it seems like he has, to some extent, sacrificed the dimension of his divinity because when he appeared after the resurrection, he never appears more than one place at a time, does he? I mean, even after he appears with the two in Emmaus, then at the upper room, they get up there, he appears again. But he didn't appear at the upper room and in Emmaus at the same time. And he appears at the tomb to Mary, later to Peter, then in the upper room, a week later. And he said, it's expedient for you that I go because, you know, I can only be with you. I'm paraphrasing. Here, now, but the Holy Spirit can be with you wherever you go. He said, I can be with you wherever you go through the Spirit. So Jesus has forever married himself to the human family in the incarnation. That's the way I understand it. But again, I'm on holy ground, and I may be wrong, but that's what I see in the Word. In keeping the Sabbath, is it okay to eat out? Is it okay to eat out on Sabbath? And I think what they mean by that is not a picnic, but if you go out and you eat out at a restaurant and buy your food, I believe we have counsel in the Bible and in the spirit of prophecy that we're supposed to remember the Sabbath, and part of that means you prepare. And there in Exodus 16, we read this morning, you bake what you're going to bake and seethe what you're going to seethe and cook. Make your preparations. The idea of the Sabbath is think ahead, get all this work out of the way so you can rest. And then it tells us in Nehemiah uh, chapter 9 and 13 that we shouldn't be doing buying and selling. Now, I know there are uh, unusual circumstances where you've got a hospital or a college and you've got people that are in necessary positions to... Um, in a cafeteria or something like that. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about people who are saying, I'm just going to go out to Denny's. Um, I don't believe that's in keeping with the spirit of the Sabbath. I believe that we shouldn't be hiring people to do something for us if we can make provisions and do something else. And that's why we should prepare. Somebody say amen. amen. Okay, thank you. I feel better. Okay. Pastor Doug, I apologize if this question is a bit ridiculous. But I always wondered, did God create dinosaurs or were those creatures man-made? Okay, and I think by you mean man-made that they were bred somehow. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just, I don't think anyone means that, you know, they're really those bones out in the desert or Lego or something like that. Um, well, I believe that there were dinosaurs. Um, when we grew up in New York City, one of our two addresses in Manhattan was across the street. We lived at Central Park West and 81st Street. It's an incredible place to grow up. At. We lived right across the street from the Hayden Planetarium and the American Museum of Natural History. 
And believe it or not, back then you could go in for free. And my brother and I, we knew every corner of that thing. And we enjoyed looking at all the dinosaur park bones. We had a dinosaur park right across the street. We'd walk out of our apartment building. First place you went is all these dinosaur bones were in the park across the street. I wanted to be a paleontologist when I grew up. And so I was real interested in the, all the different dinosaurs, stegosaurs and triceratops and brontosaurs and so forth. Um, they live, there's no question. You can go all over the world and see their bones. Uh, some have wondered, are they the result of the amalgamation and some kind of strange breeding? Well, the book, uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, does tell us that one of the things that really offended the Lord is they were doing amalgamation before the flood. And what she says is amalgamation of man and beast, not man with beast, as some have tried to make it say. You inbreed people, like Goliath, you could try to get an army of giants. Notice how one of Goliath's relatives had six digits on each finger in their toe. Some of that is a genetic feature that comes through inbreeding. They have a Philistines were trying to breed an army of giants, it sounds like. Well, they may have done some of that before the flood, but I think it's going way too far to say all the dinosaur bones are the result of men amalgamating reptiles. I think the reason you see all those bones is because after the flood, um, these creatures, it's only the large ones that are pretty much wiped out. I mean, that's the ones we think about. There's still plenty of reptiles in the world today, and you've got alligators and Komodo dragons, right? So we think of the thunder lizards, the great big ones. And they were destroyed by the flood. Nimrod was a mighty hunter. I think after the flood, not only were many of the large dinosaur species rendered extinct, obviously a lot of animals have gone extinct too. You don't see too many woolly mammoths. So a combination of climate and extermination of man, uh, any that survived shortly after the flood, I think were destroyed. But I do believe that dinosaurs and humans and these great mammals all did live contemporaneously. And so I know some people say, well, that you know, can't be because we're the fossils. It seems like they're at deeper levels. And that's a whole other study on creation evolution I'd love, to, I'd love to get into with you. But anyway, yes, I believe that they really lived. Okay. You don't say God had to take a Tyrannosaurus Rex on the ark. I mean, he could have taken an egg. He could have taken two little ones. And... Um, you know, the idea that how did they fit a brontosaurus in the ark, you, we don't need to think that way. They could have been much smaller, little ones. Okay, you ready? I'm still thinking. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Does humor strengthen the message of the cross? Does humor strengthen the message of the cross? I think we need to be careful, and I'm not pretending I haven't crossed the line. Um, I think God's a happy God. I think the Lord has a sense of humor. Have you ever considered Congress? <laughs> How things operate? Uh, you look in nature. Was there a sense of irony and humor when Jesus said, uh, if you have a log in your eye, first take the log out of your eye. When I first read that, I thought that doesn't mean log. Log must be some Hebrew term for something else. But it meant a beam, a two-by-four. If you've got a two-by-four in your eye, First, take it out of your eye. See, you just laughed when I said that. So Jesus uses irony. Or picture a camel going through the eye of a needle. Or what was Isaiah, I'm sorry, Elijah doing when the prophets of Baal were carrying on trying to get rain to come down from heaven and hour after hour they're shouting, Oh, Baal, hear us. Oh, Baal, hear us. And he begins to say, Call louder. 
Maybe he's on a journey. Is there humor? A little sarcasm even, right? Was he a prophet of God? So you don't want to get reckless with it. We have a lot of counsel about avoid foolish jesting in the New Testament. And you don't want to take away from the, um, sometimes people will say something cutting and say, I'm just kidding. But they weren't kidding. They were being cutting. They were trying to hurt you. And so, you know, there's inappropriate humor too. What is the Bible de definition of the second death, and did Jesus die that death? Well, the Bible definition of the second death is when uh, Revelation 20, it's after the final judgment of the lost, it's the executive judgment when fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours them, and they're cast into a lake of fire. Every man is burned according to what they deserve. And it's the resurrection, it's the death rather, for which there is no resurrection. It is the eternal darkness of blackness forever. It is the hopeless resurrection. Jesus, when he was on the cross and he suffered for our sins, he within him, and how he faced this, I don't know. But sin was so horrific and the separation from the Father that I believe that Jesus felt the burden and the hopelessness and the eternal separation from God that sin will ultimately cause. And so, yes, as he looked at the portals of the tomb to begin with, I think he experienced what the lost will feel. But, of course, the clouds parted. He triumphed. He said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. His utterance was one of faith. It's not like he ever lost faith. You see what I'm saying? Christ never sinned. He never lost faith. He knew the word that said that uh, he would come forth again after three days. Didn't he tell his disciples he'd rise after three days? He knew that, but I don't think he felt that way. I think he felt the separation that sin eternally causes of the second death. How are we doing for questions? How many more we got? Uh, we have plenty more. Okay, good. <laughs> How can someone be sure they have experienced God's love? Well, how do you know that you've felt God's love? The um, Bible says, love your enemies. And uh, that's one way to tell. Um, I had a friend, I don't know, I won't mention his name, but he had an experience with the Lord that when he told me about it, it, it sounded both frightening and attractive. He said he just woke up one night and he was overwhelmed as never before with a sense of his sins and he said every sin he'd ever committed just passed before him with such clarity and he had no idea what he had done and things that you never would normally with normal mental health be thinking they would come to your mind just everything poured in it was supernatural is what I mean a supernatural revelation of his sin and everything he had ever said or done unkind to his wife and he just had to get on his knees he said he thought it was going to crush him and he prayed and prayed, and all of a sudden the Lord broke through, and he just felt the forgiveness of God and the love of God. And he said, Doug, he said, I can tell you now, he says, there is nothing my wife can do that will ever make me angry with her again or speak a harsh word. He just, he said, it just transformed him. And just talking to him, I knew he had become a different man from that experience. The Lord says, you'll search for me, and you'll find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Seek and you will find. I think there's nothing more important we can seek for than the love of God. So to have that experience, and it may mean repenting of your sin. 
getting on your knees and saying, Lord, show me my sin. I want to repent. It's a gift. And then he gives you that joy of salvation. And you find out when you come away from the foot of the cross and you see how much you've been forgiven, then you start to demonstrate that by love for others and love for God. It gives you a, a supernatural patience and a joy. I really think it does. So the, what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love. And I think you could say the fruit of love is look at the other fruits of the Spirit. When you've got the primary fruit of the Spirit, love, you're going to see the other fruits of the Spirit in a person's life, and you'll know them by their fruits. Pastor Doug, are we called to baptize, or is that just for ministers? Another good question. Can any believer go and baptize? I used to believe that when I was a baby Christian, and, uh, and part of the reason I believed it is when I was living in the cave, some Baptists came hiking by the cave shortly after I read the Bible and I accepted the Lord, and they were just two Baptists. They were actually Calvary Baptist members, and first thing they wanted to know is if I was baptized. And I said, no, I hadn't been baptized yet, and so they just gave me a real quick study on baptism and baptized me. And I thought, praise the Lord. Well, they weren't ministers. They were disciples, and I thought for the early part of my Christian experience that when Jesus said, go therefore teach and baptize, that that was everybody which theoretically would mean that, let's just suppose I'm a church member, I baptize you, you are a baby Christian, you've just come into the faith, and you say, praise the Lord, you walk away, and then you start baptizing people the next day. But there's a certain grounding and teaching that needs to happen before a person really knows how to clear somebody for baptism. Baptism, it says, to bring forth fruits, John the Baptist said, worthy of baptism. Uh, there's some teaching, and a person wants to know. You know, if someone wants me to marry them, I always say, you need to have counseling. Whether I do it or someone else, you need to have counseling. It's a very serious commitment. Is your baptism to Christ less serious than marriage? Your marriage to Christ is very important. And so I think it's important that a person with some training and authority to clear somebody uh, that's one reason I think it's important that ordained ministers do baptizing. Another reason is when a person is baptized and they become part of the church, you then are recognizing that they have the right to hold office in a church. And if a person is exalted too quickly, as Paul says, in leadership before they have been grounded in the faith, the whole church can be weakened. And so I think there needs to be people with uh, experience that are able to sort of screen people and recognize the gifts and recognize the maturity, and that's why God has called the leadership to baptize. You notice the apostles laid hands on those in the book of Acts, and uh, it, there were people who were recognized, and people in Samaria were being preached to, and Philip went and got Peter and John and brought them up to lay hands on them. Why didn't Philip do it? He was a deacon. See what I'm saying? Because the apostles had been organized. Now, maybe later Philip was because he then baptized somebody, and he, in, uh, he baptized the Ethiopian. But at first, he called for Peter and John that they might receive the Spirit. That's a long answer, but it's a deep study. And you just answered the next two questions, so <laughs> it was a good one. Okay, why did God create the world and all of us when he already knew what would happen? If God knows all things... And if he's an all-powerful God, then if he knew this world would rebel and sin, then why did he make it? 
I think the greatest demonstration of God's love is that he would even create a creature that would not choose to love him. Namely, Lucifer, who then instigated you and I and our ancestors, but he made us nonetheless. Any parents out there? Let me see your hands. Okay. I won't ask if you planned your families, but let's assume you did. Did you get any written guarantee before you had children that they would always be loving and obedient? Did you recognize there was an element of risk when you had children that they might be rebellious? How many of you knew that? Was anyone naive enough to think that they would just be perfect little angels? Why did you have them? No, I'm not, hopefully you're not always asking that question, but <laughs> I'm asking you. I mean, you've, you chose to go in and to procreate and you realized there was a risk. Well, I'll, I would suggest that you wanted to love them, you want them to love you, and love takes risks. Whenever you find a guy that you get a fancy in, or a girl you get a fancy in, you might let them know that you've got an interest in them, you might face the risk of rejection that they don't have an interest of you. But you'll never love anybody if you don't take some risks. God makes his intelligent creatures with freedom to love. God is love. He cannot force it. If God only makes robots that will always obey him, then there really is no love. We've all been pre-programmed to say exactly what he tells us to say. But he is so loving that he will even make a creature that will choose not to love him. That's why he made this world. Knowing, not wanting it to happen, but knowing there was that risk. Okay. For the sake of time, we'll ask one more question. Then we'll take a short break so that everyone okay. can get a move around. All right. Okay. Last question. Make it good. The answer Okay. Well, give me a good question. <laughs> okay. When it says, if it were possible, even the elect could be deceived... How can we know we are ready for this test? Oh, that is a good question. Well, one thing that I think the Lord is telling us there is that the deception in the last days is going to be the combination of 6,000 years of study on the part of Satan and his forces. The devil is going to bring to bear all that he has learned about temptation and deception in the last days because he's going to put forth his his final push, his best efforts. And knowing that, God's people at the same time need to, we can't say, oh, well, you know, we're in the last generation, so God doesn't expect much of us. I think this generation, the Lord is calling us to be responsible for all of the combined truth that God has given his people over the ages. We stand on the shoulders of a lot of spirit-filled men and women. And I think the Lord wants us to have an experience that is commensurate with that knowledge. What the form is going to be in that last uh, days, we don't know all the details, but Christ came into the world. God became man to teach us the truth. I think the devil is going to be campaigning with God and saying, you came in the form of man to share your message. I want to come in the form of man to share my message. And Satan is going to impersonate Christ. And it is going to be very convincing and compelling. And that's why Jesus said, if they say he's in secret chambers, do not even go. If he's in the desert, don't go forth. Do not even look. If someone calls you and says, check out channel so-and-so, Jesus has appeared, don't even look. I think that if it were possible, the very elect would be deceived. And the other thing that makes it so insidious, 
it's going to be, it's going to be creepy. <laughs> what I mean by that, it's not creepy like in a scary horror film or something. It's going to be creepy in that it's going to be so small and incremental changes like boiling a frog that the church is not even going to see it happening. Matter of fact, it might be happening right now. Just think about this for a moment. The church typically feels like as long as we're holier than the world, we must be doing something right. But what's happening to the standards of righteousness in the world? You know, even the world has got some understanding of God's law and righteousness. Paul says that in Romans 1. But as it gets as it was in the days of Sodom and Noah, and the standard of the world gets worse and worse, and evil men and seducers wax worse and worse, church keeps thinking as long as we're better than the world, we're doing okay. What happens is as that level goes down and the church just tries to maintain some distance from the world, not even realizing it, our righteousness or our standard of righteousness ends up getting lower than what the world used to be. Did you get that? A uh, little case in point. When I went to public school in New York City as a kid, public school in New York City, I remember one of the girls I would walk to school with, she got sent home for immodest clothing in public school in New York City, but she could wear those clothes now at a Christian school. Things have changed. Uh, things that used to be censored on television are not censored anymore. The whole culture is changing. And this last day deception, I think the devil is softening up the church with a constant bombardment of media so that our sensibilities about what is right and what is wrong are being confused. And that's why we really need to be filling our minds with the Word of God. That's the only thing that kept Jesus from temptation. That's all that's going to keep us from temptation. And yet there's so much media out there that people are watching that is not holy. Amen? So, be close to the Lord. Spend time in His Word so we will not be taken unaware. I think we're going to take a break now and then we'll, I've got a kind of a closing devotion. Thank you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.